We've been thinking through the elements of authentic Christianity. And um, this series, we're now in our, in our uh, what, seventh week. And what we've looked at is Jesus, community, and mission. Jesus, community, and mission. Today we're back on Jesus. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're really going to focus on verses 1 through 3. But as we're thinking through these elements of authentic Christianity, we remember this, that Jesus comes first. And what does that mean? What does it mean to us here at, at Wyndham? It means that um, we have, ex- we have, be- we have um, acceptance before an all-holy God on the terms of grace. So how did we get that? We received Jesus with the empty hands of faith. We realized our needs. We saw that we really wanted to be good people, but we found out that we were really broken people. It was uncomfortable. But we discovered day by day that we are more self-centered than we are others-centered. We were just looking in Colossians um, last week, but in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, it says this. Paul says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's the bad news, isn't it? Who were we? All of us. All of us here would say we were alienated and hostile. We were enemies and we were separated from God. And how did that show? It showed through our willingness, our our propensity to do evil deeds. But the verse doesn't end there. Again, in Colossians 1.21, it says, He has now reconciled you in his body by his death in order to present you, what? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Notice the burden there. How much of that burden fell on us? Nothing. Notice the blessing, though, that fell on you. Everything that we were ever made for and dreamed of, we found. So really, when we talk about Jesus, what we're saying is we start in forgiveness. We also emphasize that we continue by growing in forgiveness. We start in acceptance and we grow by being accepted in the beloved again and again and again. Now we still sin. We still sin. And what does our Savior say to us? This is a way for you to kind of gauge, right? What does our Savior say to you when you sin? Think for a second. How would you answer that question? Our Savior says to us, you just sinned, and it doesn't matter. I'm in your life, and nothing you do will make me reject you. Our sin can destroy our health, our homes, but not the love of Jesus. That's what Jesus means to us. Jesus is the grace of endless acceptance. What we're going to see today, though, is that acceptance goes deeper. So deep that Paul's actually going to use a picture. And with that picture, he's also going to provide us with 
a warning. So there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me just kind of describe this. This is probably the fifth letter that's written to the Corinthians. So if you wanted to, not that you should, but if you wanted to, you could actually write 5 Corinthians up there instead of 2 Corinthians. There was a letter that was sent, okay? Then Paul wrote back to them again. That's the second letter. Then there's this third harmful letter or painful letter that they received. Most likely the first part of 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter, and it's very possible that this is the fifth letter, and it begins in chapter 10. All of a sudden, the whole tone of the letter changes, and it seems like Paul has kind of changed what he's talking about. Here's, here's what it is. Paul has this great relationship with a church that he dearly loves. The problem is, it's like some of your great relationships. It hasn't always been smooth or easy. And in fact, it's been pretty rocky through all of this. He begins in chapter 10 to address this new concern about his ministry. And essentially, the bottom line is this. The people have gone through and said, you know what, Paul? We found, we found the internet. Not really. But essentially, they're listening to these guys, and they're like, wow, he is so interesting, and you're kind of so-so. And, and, and the way he talks, I could listen to him for hours, and you, well, it feels like hours every time you speak. And, and, and Paul is writing to them because he has been like a spiritual, he is a spiritual father to them. And they're following these, what they call super apostles. You heard Jeff read that for us, right? These super apostles, they're not just apostles like Paul. They're the next level. They're the better apostle that comes along. The problem is these super apostles are not leading people towards Jesus at all. They're leading people towards what they're interested in, the things that they're passionate about. They're not leading people deeper towards Jesus. They're leading people away from Jesus. And that is what Paul is addressing here. But that's the context. That's what this setup here as we're going through uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 begins. We've got to understand what's going on there. Um, but Paul really gives a really powerful picture. Like I said, there's a warning in there. And he begins, though, with this, with this picture. He's going to begin to speak to them. And in, first, in 2 Corinthians 11, 1, moved by the Spirit of God... Okay, not under his own authority. Paul is writing and he says this. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Why does he say that? Well, let's just kind of think through this. He's using this Greek theatrical technique. When you go to the theater in a Greek play, every once in a while you would have somebody called the fool. And what role did the fool play? The fool in that theater essentially was a person put on stage by the playwright, by the author, who could speak directly to the audience and he could actually say whatever the author wanted to say and get away with it. He's going to build on this a little bit later on in this. Um, he says, I'm speaking like a fool. He, he, he's calling himself out saying, listen to me. I want you to understand. I am speaking very directly to you and this is very important for you to understand. And he says, actually, I'm not even pulling any punches. You need to see that that's where I am. So he goes on with the rest of verse 1. He says, please, bear with me. Because I'm the fool, bear with me. Verse 2, because I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband 
to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. What is Paul saying? This is a, a, a strange kind of logic today. It's going to make some of us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But as we're talking about Jesus, community, and mission, one of the key questions that I keep coming back to through this series is, are you and I going to look at this and say, that is Mark and the elders, and that's their technique, that's their program. It's their agenda, it's something that they're pushing when it comes to Jesus, community, and mission? Or are we going to look at this and say, no, these are biblical absolutes for every single believer? Do you see the difference? Because if it's an agenda, if it's a program, what can you say? I don't have time for that. I'm already busy. Don't you know how busy I am? I'm busy. I have things to do. Or I don't like that program. I don't want to do that. Someday, I'll move on towards being a mission. Someday, I'll even move on towards community. Instead, the challenge for us as we look through this is to say, no, if this is what God says are priorities, if these are the foundational elements of what it means to be a believer, do I argue with God? Do I have the right to say to him, no, I, I don't want that part of my life? That's the challenge. And right here, the very first one, what I want us to see today is going to be this overflow. How important is Jesus in our churches? How important is Jesus in your life? How important is Jesus in my life? And how important should he be? What Paul wants us to see is that relationship and how, again, I'll ask this question and I'd love for you to feel free to answer. How should we see our relationship with Jesus? What does the text say? What view does he want us to come to? What picture does he want in our minds? Marriage. So is, is Paul saying, okay, I want you to make sure you're really good in your marriage because that's how you honor Jesus. Is that, is that the point of the passage? Kind of pushing on this a little bit. What's he saying? Yeah. Right, and we see this theme all through Scripture, don't we? But you and I, if we are believers, if we have come to Christ, it means that we are married to Jesus. Now, I understand, for some of us, all of a sudden, there's all sorts of thoughts kind of going on and going, wow, that's weird, I'm not sure I like that type of terminology. Get over it. All right, because we're just going to look at this biblically, and we're going to say, this is Paul's calling on your life. How important should your marriage be? Very. But what kind of priority should that place on our life? Now, let me, let me just say this. I understand that when we, when, we, when we dive into a topic here, a word like this, a concept like this, for some of you is a very hard concept. And it's not my goal today to make life harder on you. 
I realize that for some of us, we have tasted marriage. And that marriage ended. And it has left a mark, a pain on us. I realize that there's others who would say, man, I wish I was married. I don't know what this is like. And what that can can pull out of us is what we wish we had. I realize that there can be others who are here where you're seated next to the person you're married to, but that is not where your heart is. This is a very comprehensive topic, and yet it is an important topic and one that we must drill into for a few minutes. God has called us. He's given us a picture. He's calling you and I. Paul here is challenging believers to say, how how are you going to look at this? How are you going to do this? Let's make a few points here. If Jesus died for us, okay, and wants to have us as his bride, that is the whole church and it's also us as individuals. In other words, there's this sense that we need to see that it's, it's Wyndham Baptist, it's, it's Missio Dei, it's other churches in this area, it's us individually though. If there's that kind of love, does Jesus just forgive us and then tolerate us? I know that there's some of us as believers, what we go through our life is we think, Jesus kind of loves me because he died for me, but he doesn't really like me. He doesn't really want me around. Is that the image that should flow out of looking at this, this picture of marriage? Absolutely not. For those of you who are married and, or, or have been married, if you think back to those days when you were going to get married, what was your perspective on that other person? I know I get to sit down with couples before they get married. We do a lot of premarital counseling around here. We want to walk with couples through this, these stages, but it's sort of funny. You know, I asked one couple a little while ago. They've been married for six months. I said, okay, so what surprised you about these first six months of being married? And they kind of thought about it for a second and said, well, I guess it's even better than we thought. Right? I mean, that's awesome, isn't it? And on the one hand, the last thing you want to do is get the old cold pail of reality and just pour it over their heads. And yet, on the other hand, we kind of know, man, isn't that a great place to be at? To be deeply in love? What changes that? The longer we're with our spouse, the more we get to know who they really are. And the other thing we get to find out about our right the longer with our spouse the more we get to find out who we really are but jesus is calling you and i into the most comprehensive of all human relationships paul's writing this like he's the dad okay if you just kind of look at it he sits there and says I betrothed you. I gave you in marriage. I pledged you to, verse, and this is in verse uh, 2, I betrothed you to one husband so I could present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Here's this dad saying, I wanted to bring you holy, complete, so you could be married to your husband. That's what he's speaking to them. Now let's think about this for just a second. There's a now aspect to this 
to this marriage, and there's a future aspect to this marriage. To be betrothed, to be engaged, to be in process. What do we what do we look at when we think about that? Today, engagement doesn't mean nearly as much as it did back in the first century. In the first century, when you were engaged, it was as close to marriage as you could possibly be. There was a real uh, deep connection there, right? Think of Joseph and Mary when Jesus was born. Where did that show up in there? When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, what was his desire? Yeah, he was going to he was going to put her aside. He was going to divorce her quietly. See see how how engaged they already were? In that view, it would have been a massive thing to break off that engagement, different than than what it is today. So we need to see that. But in the same way, when you and I look at this, when is this marriage with Jesus going to be consummated? The marriage supper of the Lamb, right? When we go to heaven. Does that mean that today we're more like North Americans engaged to Jesus? Where it's kind of an on again, off thing. We can kind of see what, what happens as we flow out of this, right? No. There's this deep powerful relationship god has pledged himself to us and we are pledged to christ in this deep abiding relationship not just then but now today jesus loves you as if you were already married today it's a massive calling on our lives i want us to see and understand, remember, that God reconciles sinners to himself through Christ. And he welcomes us into this relationship that is intensely personal. He doesn't simply tolerate us. He brings us close to himself by giving himself to us. That's what Jesus thinks about you today. Jesus has made us the recipients of his affection. Think about, again, engaged couple. Jesus has made you the recipient of his affection. But the warning in this passage is what? The warning is that we, in turn, are to make him the ultimate object of our affections as well. Paul goes on and he says, verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There's this powerful image. There's this powerful image in here that Jesus loves you and wants you to be as close to him as possible. And you're called to that. But there's also a warning in here. There's a warning that says, be careful. Paul's worried that they will be seduced by temptation. Paul's worried that they will give their hearts to false lovers instead. So what's the problem? Let's just say it this way. We worship what we find attractive. We worship what we find attractive. Here's a question. 
What false lovers entice you to forget your true husband and the faithfulness that he deserves? When we talk about Jesus, this is a key question. And I don't care if you're 9 or 90. Jesus is calling to us for affection and for love, not because he's needy, but because that's what a marriage needs. And the question, the warning that this question is supposed to bring out is, hey, be careful. You and I are prone to worship other things. We're prone to be unfaithful to our spiritual husband, Jesus. We are prone to try and find life somewhere else other than in him. Now, I want to remind us. I want to share these three these three insights that, that come out of this passage. The first insight that I want us to understand is that first, your life is not first and foremost about your personal fulfillment. It's about progressive personal holiness. If you will take that and believe that, that your life is not first and foremost about personal fulfillment, it's about progressive personal holiness, that will solve 90% of our problems. Amen? Because if I believe that life is about my personal fulfillment... What's going to get in the way of that? Your marriage. Why? Because there's two of you. And if it's all about my fulfillment, and yet if my spouse has a voice in what we're going to do, there are going to be times where she's not just going to see the world properly. She's not going to see what's really great, what we really ought to do. Because I have a really good design about what I think is is perfect for our lives together. Right? What else is going to get in the way of my, if, if I really believe that life is first and foremost about my personal fulfillment, what else is going to get in my way? Kids. Right? Don't our kids kind of get in the way of our personal fulfillment and happiness? When was the last time you wanted just to take a little nap, parents of young kids? Your kids take naps all the time. Right? You lay them down for naps. And you're jealous. I know you are. I know you sit there and go, man, I wish somebody would just let me have like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour or two. Really? This would be amazing. But what gets in the way of that? Every time you lay that kid down, you think, I'm going to sneak a nap in. Guaranteed that little one's going to be up crying, screaming, something. No way you're getting that nap that day. Our kids get in the way of our own personal fulfillment and happiness. Your car is going to get in the way of your personal fulfillment and happiness. Amen? I swapped cars with somebody this week because they needed our Suburban. And it was great because their car is glitchy. Um, Especially in the rain, it turns out. So I'm driving down the road... And the door locks are going click, 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 the whole way home. That got in the way of my personal fulfillment and happiness. Not quite as much as when I parked it in the driveway, went inside, and Tracy came in an hour later and said, the dome lights are on in the car. And I'm like, dome lights are on? So I went out and thought, oh, who's been playing with the dome lights? You know, my kids will do that all the time. Well, it's glitchy. 
Turns out the dome lights won't turn out unless you sit in the seat just right. That car got in the way of my personal happiness and holiness because I'm not inside doing what I want to do. I'm outside getting eaten by mosquitoes trying to figure out how to get these dome lights to turn out. Your job will get in the way of your personal fulfillment. The weather will get in the way because <laughs> we're New Englanders, right? It's too hot. It's too cold. It's raining. It's too sunny. I don't know. All these things are going to get in the way of our personal holiness, our personal fulfillment. And if I think, though, that you exist to make my life better, I am going to be sorely disappointed. And one of the key reasons for that is because the majority of people in our world believe that I exist to add to their personal fulfillment. The problem is we can't have both. But marriage is not first and foremost about personal fulfillment as i counsel with couples one of the first questions i'll ask them is what do you think the purpose of marriage is and invariably somehow it comes back to a phrase something similar to happily ever after but marriage is not first and foremost about your own personal holiness this passage gives us hope why because i am engaged to jesus and i'm going to be connected to jesus for eternity that means that it's not first and foremost about my personal fulfillment it's actually about my progressive personal holiness that explains that car right because God wasn't worried about whether or not I was comfortable. What he wanted to do was work on my progressive personal holiness in the driveway at 11 o'clock at night, getting eaten by mosquitoes. That's what Jesus... And, and it's purposeful. It's purposeful. Remember that about your marriage. God loves your spouse with all of their weirdnesses. We, we talk about sin and strangeness. And the two are rarely the same thing. But remember for your spouse, God's great calling, the reason you are part of their life is to be part of their progressive personal holiness. And that is that you at times will speak truth and reality into their life to help them. You know the other role that you play in, de in developing their personal progressive holiness? You are the button that sets them off for them to find out their sin. You rub them the wrong way. You are nails on a chalkboard. And what God does is say, let me show you to your spouse where I need to change you. And I'm going to show you that through your spouse. It doesn't make us sound real good, does it? But it's true. Here's the great thing. When you're married to Jesus, though, He doesn't need to grow in progressive personal holiness. He is completely holy already. So just imagine this. Jesus has never had a self 
centered thought about you. He never once suggested something sounding like it was for your good when really it was for his. Can you imagine that? Jesus is truly looking out for your good. But fidelity is the issue, isn't it? Will I remain faithful to Jesus or will I seek fulfillment somewhere else? Spiritual purity, single-minded devotion, and obedience figure more prominently because of my marriage to Christ. We're not called to date outside of our relationship. So the first insight, my life is not first and foremost about my personal fulfillment. About me finding what makes me happy. It's about becoming more holy. Second thing that I want us to see is this, and these kind of overlap a little bit, but the life I now live is preparation for the life I will then live. The life I'm living now is preparation. That's also going to help you when you have a glitchy car. Because the glitchy car is not about, wow, am I happy right now with my great car? It's about preparing me to be with Jesus. My now life is preparation for then marriage to Christ when the marriage supper of the Lamb sets the stage for all of eternity. Now I learn to walk with Him. I learn to trust Him. I get to see His incredible faithfulness and holiness. Now I fall in love with Him, but not as completely as I will someday when I am free from my sin nature. And since Jesus is the prize, anything that draws me away from Him is no longer essential. All the everyday moments of life are filled with opportunities to be changed more into the likeness of the one who married me. Marriage, this engagement period we're in, is time for us to get to know Jesus so that we will need Him and love Him and depend on Him more. Just a side note, if our thought of heaven is all the great things that we're going to do there instead of who we will be with, this will not be appealing. If heaven is the great place I'm going to go to do what I want to do, not who I want to be with, as in Jesus, in a sense, heaven can become hell for us. What? I'm going to spend time with Jesus. They promised me golf. What? I I thought heaven was going to be all. No, heaven is about this relationship. Heaven is like the honeymoon. Heaven is about this deepening commitment and relationship with Jesus. And let's just be honest. That's why Marriage doesn't exist in heaven anymore. Marriage, though, is an incredible picture for us today of what it's like to live, to be loved, to be cared about. That's the ideal. That's what it should be. I know that's not always our experience, but that's what it's supposed to do for us. So, 
like we said, my life is not first and foremost about my personal fulfillment. It's about progressive personal holiness. Second, the life I live now, it's just preparation for the life that I will live then. It's sort of premarital counseling. The third thing is that sincere and pure devotion is the only standard. Listen, the Christian life is helped by having a personal time with Jesus. The Christian life is, is helped when we, when we give financially. The, the Christian life is helped when we serve in ministry. It's, it's helped when we study theology. It's, it, it's helped when we, we listen to great music and, and, it, and it moves us. But can't we do all those things even if Jesus isn't the center of our life? Yes. You can do all of those things. In the same way that a couple, they can go on a date. They can, they can um, make breakfast in bed. They can spend time playing with their kids. They can go away to a cabin for the weekend. They can, they can do all of these things and not have that relationship be central. They can be carrying on an affair. Christianity is not first and foremost the things we do. Christianity is first and foremost the one that we love. So that's why we keep coming back to these questions. Who is it? Are there other lovers that seek your attention? Are there other lovers that you are courting in your life? Your job. Your, I don't know, your, your physical health. Your, your financial health. Got to get that new car. Got to get Whatever it is, are, are we weighing through that? What was utmost in your affections this week? Here, here's usually the way that we kind of find out a little bit. When you actually had a moment of downtime, and I know some of you are going to laugh, especially moms of young kids, okay? But when you had a moment to yourself, what was the big thing that popped up in your mind? What did you think about? What did you dream about? What did you plan for? These are the idols that we love and worship. And yet, Paul is saying, I'm calling you to, some, to this pure devotion to Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? Let's just answer this question before we go to the table. Because the way you answer this question is, is as critical as the rest of the theology. How do we do this? Well, first, let me remind us. The way that you are going to love Jesus as your husband is when we realize that Jesus is the one who models this for us. He loves us with a sincere and pure devotion. He brings the assets. We bring the deficits. 
When we come into this relationship, we don't come into it and Jesus says, wow, this is going to be good for the tribes. We bring these two together. Man, she's bringing this. I'm bringing this. This is going to be awesome. Instead, Jesus looks at it and says, you bring debt and deficit and weakness and sinfulness. And yet I have abundance and I have more than enough. I have holiness. I have sincerity. I have purity and I love you. The way that we move into this is not going to flow out of me yelling at myself. Have you ever tried that? Especially in an area of the heart. I'll share one other story. I can remember when Tracy and I uh, had met. We were living in Connecticut at that point, and And here I had met this wonderful young lady. And I was bringing her on Thanksgiving down to, Connect- down to uh, Virginia to visit my, my family. I'm not from Virginia. I just need to clarify that, okay? My family lived there. All right? But I was bringing her with me. And I can remember when we were going down there, all of a sudden I began to feel a concern. A worry. Maybe she's not the one. So what did I do? Oh, Mark, don't be an idiot. Don't be stupid. Don't blow this. She's the best thing in your life. Don't be dumb. I talked to myself. I listed all the reasons why she was so perfect for me. I went through all these kind of things. Did it work? No. I was an idiot. I was a fool. We went down there. And while I was down there, I had already begun to distance myself emotionally from Tracy. So on the way back, uh, before a 12-hour ride, she says to me, you're kind of treating me different while we were down there. Is everything okay? So I broke up with her. We still had 12 hours left to ride. That was not the most fun um, car ride in the world. We spent the next year on the hiatus, okay, because I'm an idiot. But, thankfully, we were able to move forward, and she married me. 19 years this November. Woo! So, what, what I'm saying here, the reason I tell this story is, first of all, I want you to think well of her and see what an idiot I am, okay? Second of all, I want you to see, you can yell at yourself, you can tell yourself, you can list out all these things, you can sit there and say, the Bible says I'm supposed to do this, you can put these standards in front of yourself, but if you simply come at it from a doctrinal um, side of good theology or disciplined obedience, you can get yourself to do the right things like I did with Tracy. I treated her well while we were on that trip. But the problem was my heart disengaged and she could sense it. And there was nothing I could do to stop my heart through good thinking and also disciplined obedience. Jesus is not calling you to simply disciplined obedience and right thinking. Jesus is calling you to love him. And how does that happen? It happens from being near him from seeing Him, from being connected to Him. You might say, I'm not an emotional person. Get over yourself. You are. God gave you a heart and He has called you and commanded you what to love Him. 
to love Him, not just serve Him. It is not enough for any of us here to simply know right thoughts and do right things. God has called you to love Him. That's what Paul's warning here. But Jesus doesn't leave you on your own in this either. Let me say that. Jesus doesn't leave you because of your relationship with Jesus, because you're united with Him. Guess what? You and I are renewed daily by His Spirit. Jesus is working so that the evil in our heart is progressively replaced by a growing ability to love and to worship and rejoice in Him. Remember I said that we come with the deficits and Jesus comes with the assets? Jesus has enough to help you love Him. And that's what He's working on day in and day out. Bottom line, how do I move forward in this? On a day like today, what I do is I repent. The same way I came into the faith is the same way I continue in the faith. And the way I continue in the faith today is I sit there and I say, wow, that's a warning. That's important for me. I'm not necessarily even there today. So what should I do? I should repent. And repentance is not saying, wow, I can't believe I did that. I'm so shocked that that's who I am. And repentance is not saying, God, I'll never do it again. I promise this is the very last time. That's not repentance because that's all my assets. That's all my work. That's me bringing things to the table. Repentance is when I turn to God and I go ahead and just admit it. God, that's who I am. I struggle with this. I love this. I find this attractive. I think it's promising me something. God, I need help. And then I repent. Jesus, I need you to do this for me. Jesus, I need you to work in me. Jesus, would you do this for me? Remember we showed a couple weeks ago that cycle, right? Those three stages that the Spirit is always involved in. But we're called to rejoice, to love, to relish Jesus, to treasure Him, to cherish Him. But then we get the promises and the warnings, right? That's the second step. And when we come to those promises and warnings, what are we going to find out? We don't love Him the way that we ought to love Him. So the gift that God gives us is repentance. And by faith, we get to turn away from what we think we're going to find our life in. Instead, we get to go back. And what's the result in our heart? The result in our heart is affection again toward Jesus. We fall in love with Jesus more because of how kind and compassionate and gracious He is to us. So today as we come to the table, what I want to challenge us to do is to come in repentance. What is it? What what, what is it that that has been stealing your affection away from Jesus? What is it? What what, um, suitor has come along to say to you, I can give you life that Jesus can't give to you? And repent of it. And be set free. Experience that renewing in the relationship. Have you ever had a disagreement with someone? Have you ever come to a breaking point in a relationship with somebody? And then when that gets healed, what's the result? It's great joy.
It's great joy. It's affection. It's love. You sense love. So that's why we come to the table today. It's a, it's a custom-made opportunity where Jesus says, I will meet you. And you can come and confess who you are, where you've been looking, what you've been needing. And then you can r- repent of that and by faith trust me to be more than what you think you found. That's what we do together today. So what I'm going to do is have the worship team come. And um, let me just share with you, again, if you haven't been here before, we do things a little differently today. We're going to do this. We're, we're going to take some time. We're going to sing some songs. You're free to be seated.